G'day listeners and welcome to a very special Doctor Who Show Presents episode. Today we're going to spend almost an hour with the 7th Doctor, Sylvester McCoy. Yes, this is for real, it's not a drill, but before I hit play on the tape I think I should explain how all of this came about. You might remember that years ago when I was doing the Who Wars podcast, it was with a team that featured a lot of contributors, but largely content from Kate Alexandra and a chap known as The Rev, or Andy to his nearest and dearest. Now I've stayed in touch with Andy since those days, and I even chatted to him for most of the first episode of the Doctor Who show, a sort of baton-changing moment as we kicked off the new show with one of the old show's stalwarts, so to speak, and he even popped up again more recently with a segment in our special Jodie Whittaker episode. But today, well, this is something else. As Andy explains it, A few years ago, I started a journey in the world of podcasting. One of my greatest honours was working on Who Wars with Rob, who, as a producer, was gracious enough to put some interviews my way. I found I loved the experience, so set about finding more Doctor Who people to interview, and I built up quite an address book. It was with this contact list that I approached a company called District 14, who were arranging the first Comic Con in my hometown of Hull. To cut a long story short, I became their MC, and three years later I'm part of the company, arranging festivals, cons, and cruises. I don't have a bucket list anymore because several times a year I get to interview people from Star Wars, Doctor Who, and so much more. I owe that to Rob lighting the spark on Who Wars, so it's with great pleasure that I can send you my latest interview from Bridlington Comic Con, some bloke called Sylvester McCoy. Andy goes on to point out that Sylvester is a great physical comedian, so some of that is lost in the audio, but you should be able to imagine some of it, like when he puts on Andy's coat, which is a little too big for him. Anyway, Andy concludes, I hope you enjoy the interview. Speak again soon. Well, thank you so, so much, Andy, both for the interview and your kind words about me and your time on Who Wars and where it's led you and all that kind of good stuff. That's just you know, pretty mind-blowing to me, actually. And if I can just make a quick note here that Andy and co. raise money at these cons for their local air ambulance and also the Alzheimer's Society. So if you enjoy listening to this and you're ever in a position to give, why not think about your local equivalents of those two in your local state or territory? Anyway, now, without any further ado, I present Mr. Sylvester McCoy. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let me invite a member of the audience up on stage. Please welcome Sylvester McCoy. Oof. <laughs> right, hello. Hello. So, it's nice and cold, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's up north, isn't it? You're up north now. I'm a soft, I'm a soft southerner. Actually, I'm, but I, I come from the highlands of Scotland, so as far as I'm concerned, you're all southerners to me. But in fact, I've lived in London now for about 50 years, so I'm a very soft southerner. So I'm freezing. It's cold. I'm sorry, do you want, do you want to put on my jacket? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a brother, I didn't think it was going to be so cold. Well, you don't have to take your money out, just leave it in. <laughs> Where are you? Where? There we go. <laughs> right. Wait a minute, I've lost my hand. <laughs> There it is. Yeah, but what's happened to the other one? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's better. Stop it! No, no, it's The different sizes. Oh, I better make that one longer. Oh, that's it. Anyway, hello. I do ask, I've got some questions written, but I've been forewarned and prepared for it. It's quite lively. 
Sylvester. <laughs> and I think you demonstrated perfectly what my initial questions are all about, which are about um, what inspired you. What inspired you? What was the young Sylvester like? What were you like at school? Complete pain. Really? Yeah, no, at school I was, uh, yeah, I used to drive the teachers mad. I, uh, I used to get lines, and they punished us two ways. In Scotland, they used to punish you by giving you the strap. It was um, legalised torture. They got a, a leather strap, and they had fingers at the end, and they'd put your hands like that, and then they'd strap you, give you six of the best. And I got them so much, I had calluses all the way along here. In fact, I still got one. That was from the teacher. But then I went to another school, and they stopped giving you know, punishment like that. Uh, for misbehaving, and then they gave me lines. And I remember, I used to get lines like, I shall not uh, talk in class 500 times, and then, or I shall not stare at Elspeth Calder 500 <laughs> times. And I used to think, this is a waste of my young teenage life. I'm signing these bloody things, this is terrible. Not realising that I would end up doing it. I'm signing my autograph the same way all the time. <laughs> so it wasn't a waste of time, actually, my education. Not punishment, though. No, punishment. But, um, yeah, no, I was lively um, in, in school. I was always getting into trouble for being too jolly, you know, because I, I, uh, Scotland, uh, miserable Presbyterian Danoon, you know, they're all wee about like that, you know. And you, why are you so happy? Come here, put your hand up, slap. That'll make you happier. <laughs> so, yes, no, I was always getting into trouble, I'm happy to say. Now, I'm not, I'm not skipping out bits of your life for you, but the other bits, things that interest me when I've been reading about you is that um, some of your stage performing life, you uh, performed as Buster Keaton and Stan Laurel. Were people like that important to you and the actual art of clowning and performing? Well, yes, what happened, I mean, it was funny because I, I, I became an actor by accident. Uh, I, I, I was working, as it happened, in the theatre, the Roundhouse in London, in the box office. One of the an actor used to come in and collect the tickets I was selling when he wasn't working because his wife was assistant administrator of the Roundhouse in London, and so he used he was an actor and he used to come in and we used to run around and have fun. Then one day, a director came in and said to him that uh, he's got this wild show and he said someone's let me down. Do you know anyone? Who could, uh, this is a really mad show and. Brian Murphy, who was the actor, said, well, ask the guy in the box office, he's out of his head. And so that was it. I became an actor because he asked me and I said yes. And I had never I hadn't done any training. Um, and then it was a very physical show. And suddenly I discovered that I had a baggage of talents and abilities that I had no idea I had until I was asked to do them. Fall down those stairs, I did. Fall out that window, I could. You know, or stumble, do, you know, visual comedy when I could. And I think it all stems from way back when I was a little baby. My mother was a war widow, and we lived in the highlands of Danoon, a place called Danoon, and we had two cinemas, and they changed their um, pictures every two nights so she could go. So there was no television. And I think she used to take me, she was lonely, to the cinema, and one night in one cinema, and then the next night in the other one, and back and forth, back and forth. And I was actually watching Buster Keaton, Stan Laurel, all these guys, because they were all coming out then. You know, they were all hot, and, you know, there. And I grew up watching them. I, I only presume that because I was, I could do what they could do. I mean, it was weird. It was really weird. 
And if I hadn't been asked to be an actor, I would have not known that I was got that talent. Yeah. Somewhere. Oh, it's a good talent to have. Um, now, whenever, whenever I read biographies of you or interviews about you or look you up, one thing that is always mentioned is that everybody How could you look me up? How could you look me up? You're taller than oh, I am. Oh, I looked you down then. So let's get it. Let's get it. When I, when I read about you, it always mentions the Ken Campbell Roadshow. Oh, yeah, as, Ken. As though we should all know what it is like it rolls off your tongue. Now, what, in a nutshell, is the Ken Campbell Roadshow? Well, the Ken Campbell Roadshow is, um, if you want, you can see a bit of it on, uh, on YouTube, I believe. Someone told me there's seven minutes of it on YouTube, and it's from Secret Policeman's Ball yes. with Monty Python uh, lot and Billy Connolly and um, loads of other people doing it, and you could get a taste of what the roadshow was. It was very physical. It was, um, it was I, I played a stuntman, uh, who it was a skinny little stuntman who, who did everything. Got bricks broken on his chest, uh, lay on a bed of nails, uh, exploded bombs on my chest, set light to my head, blew fire, banged nails up my nose, stuck ferrets down my trousers, mentally combusted cotton wool, um, you, you know, levitated, Everything, you know, that the normal stuntman would do. Well, we did them all. And it was, that was a skeleton. And then it was coated in costume in Ken Campbell's wit and wisdom, because the lines are very funny. So it's very, it was a great, I mean, I, I no idea. See, I, luckily for him, I got to drama school, because I didn't know you were not weren't supposed to do these things. I didn't know I was supposed to say, I'm an actor, over my face. But you say, you know, fall down the stairs. Yeah, my guy. Wow, we're going to have a competition. Who's best at falling down the stairs? So we'd all fall down the stairs, and I won. Excellent. And so therefore I had to do it every night, twice on Saturdays. And now I've got metal hips and metal ankles because, you know, comedy war wounds from doing all that stuff. You've already preempted me talking about the secret place of because I did find that clip. But the reason I came to it was because I don't know if anyone's a similar age to me in here, but I used to watch you on telly when I was little and things like Jigsaw, and Tiz was, and you worked with David Rappaport. Yes. He was working with him on The Secret Place as well. And it seemed to me that a lot of things that were happening in children's TV, the anarchy, were echoing what was happening with the um, alternative comedy movement at the time. So is that how you found yourself wrapped up with The Secret Police as well? Well, yes, in a way. I mean, more, it was, that's how I got the job on Tiz was. Because we were doing it. We were, we were doing theatrical anarchy. And then Tiswas came along later, and they did see me in it, so they asked me to join. Tiswas was very anarchistic. But um, uh, and, and then Python, we were before Python, but they we weren't hadn't got to Cambridge or Oxford, and you know so they got and they got more famous than we did because of that really. But we were doing that stuff before them. Not that I mind. I mean, they're great. I'm, I admire them immensely, they're wonderful. But, you know, it was all in the ether as well. Oh. We're all doing it. Well, you know, kind of people were doing all these kind of mad things, taking stuff from, you know, buskers of the 1930s and putting them in the show, taking variety and, you know, bringing all that into the show, but making it incredibly modern. <coughs> then it was modern, really. Oh, yeah. um, and another thing that I remember that I mentioned to you earlier is uh, a program called Eureka. 
I Which don't. One? Do I? It's your jacket. <laughs> if you don't remember Eureka, or it's somewhere in your mind, it was this program that was like cross between horrible mysteries and QI, but 20 years before that. And there were some sketches online of that. There's a really good one of you talking about digital watches. Really? In an American accent, very fast. Oh my god. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, well, that was, Eureka was the discovery of everything. And we, it was a great show as an actor to do because we got to play, about, you know, four or five or six parts in the, in the half hour series. And we had makeup jobs to do. And it was very exciting and very uh, fascinating as well and very educational for us. And, you know, to discover various things. And um, my, my favorite one was baked beans. There were two, re- we did two sketches on baked beans. One was that Mr. Hines had a factory in America, uh, a factory, a storeroom in America, and he had tomatoes in a tin, and he had beans in a tin, and there was a fire, and this is supposedly how baked beans were discovered, and there was a fire, and um, he uh, he was sitting in the ruins of the fire, distraught and unhappy, and he just happened to touch um, the mixture of baked beans and thing, and Wow, and that's how big beans were born because of a, an accident. But we did, we did it as Long John Silver as well. Right. Because as you know, Long John Silver was a, sh- a cook, chef. And I, I, the only reason why I did it is I always wanted to play Long John Silver. So mm-hmm. we ended up dramatizing Long John Silver inventing big beans. But he ended up um, disappearing off into the ether because there was a lot of wind around. <laughs> He farted his way out of the school. Excellent. Now, the other thing that I've come across in my research, Sylvester, is that it says here that you played Doctor Who. Did I? Apparently so. Did anybody know that? I'm in The Hobbit, you know. (laughs) Not not until page two, you're not, Sylvester. All right, okay. Um, Okay, so um, at the the time you got the role, as the Doctor, it, it wasn't that precious to the BBC, but to the fans it was as big as ever. What did you know about its position, both with the fans and with the BBC at the time of getting the role? Absolutely nothing. I had no idea. I mean, I watched Doctor Who way back with Patrick Troughton, he was my first Doctor, and I kind of watched it with John Pertwee and the beginning of Tom. Then I became an actor, and of course, in those days there was no means of recording it. It was only ever shown once, so you, you, know, I, you lose. I lost touch with it then after so many years. I can't remember. Uh, maybe it's twenty years, and then, and then suddenly I got the the role, and I, I had this memory of Patrick Trouton, and that's all I brought to it. I had no idea what happened to Colin. I didn't know anything about that. I, I, I just they offered me the job. I took it, and then I, I get hints of something. You know, dark had happened before, but wasn't quite sure what it was. And then I uh, had no idea about the fan love for it. I got the job on a Monday, um, and this the on the Thursday they flew me to Atlanta, Georgia, to a convention. I didn't have conventions as such in Britain at that time. They only were just starting, and I had no idea about what a convention was, except from a Long and Hardy film, Sons of the Desert, in which they all. You know, they go off and go to a convention, not telling their wives. And I thought that's what a convention was. And in that, they wear fezes. That's right. And then suddenly now, in this 21st century, I go to conventions and people are wearing fezes. So it's like Sons of the Desert, London Harvey all over again. 
when I arrived in Atlanta, and it was a heat wave, and it was quite extraordinary because it was an open-air kind of convention. It was in the university, in some rooms you went into, but people walked in between. And so I was, I was met by these tall Americans, all dressed as Tom Baker, in a heat wave. And they had big hats, big wigs, big scarves, big coats. And I thought, these people are mad. <laughs> I mean, they, and they, even for Atlanta people, it was too hot. And they, but the ladies were very wise. They were all dressed like Leela. Yes. Which is, you know, you know, shiny leather, bits of shiny leather. But the thing was, they were American ladies of a certain girth. I mean, you know, Mitchell. <laughs> so it was the weirdest sight, you know, these tall guys all dripping, and then these ladies, you know, kind of flopping. But anyway, it was uh, it, that was my introduction to the fans, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in America. I loved it. I mean, I, I did it, and we did the convention, and John Nathan Turner said to me, he said, you've taken to this like a duck to water. Because I fell off the stage and I got people to try and get me back onto the stage and I did a whole routine. Whereas they ended up on the stage and I was still sitting down. <laughs> I couldn't do that now, but I used to go to do that. So you've mentioned the sort of birth of conventions there. And at that time as well, even with the way it was with the BBC, there was books being published, there was videos being released, there was Doctor Who magazine. At some point, did you realise that, oh, hang on, I'm going to be scrutinised, analysed, and be remembered this for this forever? And did it start affecting your performance, or did you just carry on as normal? No, I didn't carry on as normal. I carried on as abnormal. <laughs> I just carried on as an abnormally do, really. Yeah, no, I didn't really, I didn't follow all that, did I? I mean, I, I, I didn't really look at the press, I didn't follow that, I just got on with it. There was, I mean, there was some contention. There was some, you know, kind of um, certain fans had taken against the producer. I mean, I learned this later. I didn't actually know at the time, but I knew there was some kind of negativeness going on. So I just really ignored it because, you know, otherwise it would have, you know, in the way, but I wouldn't let it get in the way. And Andrew Cartmel and I both, in a sense, not educated in the world of the universe of who, just made... Uh, made it up as we went along. And I think in a way that was helpful because we didn't have all that baggage. We just interpreted the script and, and worked out. And I also discussed, I, my granny got to be 100 years <clears throat> in those days. That was a long time. That's more common. But it was unusual then. So my granny got to 100 years and I went to see her. She was very bright. And still, but she kind of, the, the weariness of longevity. And I thought, wow, well, my doctor's 950 years old. I want to bring that to him. And then I thought, well, everyone know too much about the Doctor. The mystery's all gone. I want to bring back the mystery. So we discussed that, Andrew and I, and we'll try to work out. And that's why I became mysterious. And, and, and you know, was he devious? What's he doing? You know, make him the question mark. Bring that back to the Doctor. But also, the other thing I was very strong about was the violence. I, I, when I arrived, I just thought the Doctor wouldn't be violent. Um, but then I read, I saw some uh, tapes Afterwards, and you know, saw Tom Baker beating up somebody, and someone else, and they're all hit. And I thought, no, the doctor doesn't do that. He comes, he's a much more intelligent alien, you know, more intelligent than, than humanity. I mean, and, and, and you know, kind of uh, violence is a human weakness, not a human strength. That was how I wanted to play it. So, that's another thing I wanted to bring to it. But at the same time, I didn't want to do away with the violence because everyone likes it. It's the cute. Nothing nicer. People are so entertained watching someone getting the bejesus beaten out of them. 
So, um, you know, I gave that to Ace. She could do that. But I, but my doctor wasn't, you know, that, that was part of my... Also, I wanted, you know, I knew I was a superhero, and therefore I wanted the kids to know that, oh, you don't have to actually solve your problems by brawn. You can do it by brain. And that was very important to me. I also liked that. I thought I was a bit too young for the doctor when I got it. And it wasn't until I did the film, Handover, I thought, ah, that's the right age. But that was too late. I was saying goodbye. Yes. And the reason why I thought I was too young was that when I first saw Doctor Who way back, it was an older person. And I remember thinking, this is really, really important. Anglo-Saxon society is not very kind to its old people. Uh, it kind of just dumps them in old people's homes and forgets them, generally. Whereas, you know, Latin families, they all look after, you know, as, as a much more, and other, other societies look after the old and respect the old. But Anglo-Saxon societies, we don't, Americans don't. We don't, I mean, that's generalization, but it's there. And I thought, it's so important to have an old superhero. So when, when they got, you know, um, when they, they, they got, a, you know, Matt Smith, when they cast a 12-year-old, I thought, no, no you can't do it. You know, it's, we want to keep the old guy, because young people grow up with a superhero who's got, who doesn't wear his underpants outside his trousers, you know, he, and he uses his brain. And, and I thought that was so, so important. Although I think Matt Smith was great, because... When you see him, his face is like 525,000 years old. It's got so much in it. I mean, you, you believed he was an alien, and you believed that he was. But, um, do you know what I mean? That was yeah. So that was the thing I wanted to bring to Doctor Who. And um, you mentioned Sophie Aldrich there. Oh, did I? You were chatting. Did um, I win? You, just, just briefly. Did I? Um, I mean, as a viewer watching that, you were an amazing team, and you, I sort of guess you landed on your feet there with somebody really good to perform alongside. And, Career of good humour. Yes, no, I was, we got on to the very first minute we met. She laughed at all my jokes. She still does. She's amazing, really. Um, and and uh, we had the same kind of uh, sense of humour, um, political outlook. Um, uh, you know, she, uh, she was lively and you know, kind of up for some danger and anything. You know, she wasn't girly and all that kind of way. Oh, yeah, she was a very beautiful girl, but she. It was, um, there was nothing wrong with being girly, but it was just, for Ace, she was absolutely right. And you had a lot of guest stars in your oh, yes. adoption, some really interesting ones, some very famous ones. Which ones stand out to you? Richard Briar was great. Uh, he, I, I, we couldn't do any scenes because we just laughed all the time. We had the same sense of humour. Um, oh gosh, lists. Um, uh, Ken Dodd was interesting. Um, Doddy. Ah, Mrs. Hart! He only did one night shoot. Oh. We did a night shoot. And he arrived, the great Ken Dodd. And I remember, thinking, oh my God, that's Ken Dodd. And he came and he said very humbly, he said, Look, um, you guys know more about this than I do. If you see anything, just help me out. Do help me out. Um, which is very humble of him. And he was doing the scene. And then something very, very sad happened. Because in those days, it was outside broadcast. We were in a big, big van. It's full of tech. It was just like a studio, only in, on a big lorry, and it was video, so it was outside broadcast. And uh, Ken you know, did this thing, he's on a platform, and a millionth person arrives on the platform, and we, we were that, Bonnie and I. We arrive, and he comes out, ah, you won a holiday to Disneyland. I, mean, I love the whole story, the premise, and you all got on the bus. And he, he then does, other people come, aliens come, and they go through a, like a, a metal detector door and come out as 50s people with the teddy boys, you know, kind of big dresses and things like that. 
And that was all great fun. And then they got on the bus, which is a, a spaceship, and they head for Disneyland. And then by chance, Americans set off a Sputnik, or a, a, a rocket, early on, and it hits the bus, and it ends up going, knocking it off course, and it ends up in um, Butlin's holiday camps, right. which I thought was a hoot. Because, I mean, the BBC, I mean, they couldn't afford holiday, you know, brought, you couldn't, uh, Disneyland, so... Anyway, that was great, and that was really good fun. And then, when the baddies arrived and captured Ken and, and Dodd, uh, his character, and tried to get him to, um, you know, confess where whoever they were looking for was, he was still going, and, and, and he'd said, please tell me. Now, I was watching this on the, in, in the studio, portable studio, and the producer was turned to the director and said, what's he doing? And I was sitting there thinking, um, well, I, I can't, because it's a funny thing, actors, it's, you don't tell other actors how to act. It's one of the kind of unwritten rules. You don't do that, really. And I thought, I can't go to Ken and say, because I'm sure all he wants, oh, and I was, I thought, why are they not telling him? Why isn't the director? Why is the producer? And, and they cut out a lot of his stuff because of that. And all I, if, if I now, I should have been braver, I should have gone up to him and said, listen, Ken, imagine you're playing the Palladium. Imagine, because the IRA were active at that time. I said, imagine you're playing the Palladium and the IRA arrived in the middle of your act and, and, and you know, kind of captured you. That's where you're at now, you know. And he could do that because he played Malvolio Shakespeare, you know, really well. Uh, and, um, and, and most comics are really good actors. They can do tragedy. Terrific. I mean, it's just a great shame he wasn't given that chance to do it. And uh, I always regret that. And that was that particular story, Dragonfire. I did have a lot of good ca- cast guests in it. It was was it Hugh Lloyd? Oh yeah, it was the B. Oh, he was lovely. He was such a lovely man. I got to know him quite well as well because he was a great friend of the producers, and I became a great friend of John Nathan Thomas too. Who used to they all lived down near Brighton, and they used to go down there, you know, kind of when I was doing tours, they'd come and see me plays, good chat, hang out. Yeah, and who were the guys who were the American agents? I forget the name. Oh yes, that was um, that wonderful. Oh, does anyone remember? He used to sing. Stubby Stubby hair, standing on the corner, watching all the girls go by. He was a great American yeah. um, film and music star, Broadway star. He was lovely. We had um, it was very sunny. Uh, we were on location. It's very hot, and the the um, the guys, the technical guys. Muscular guy, and uh, he came up there and took his shirt off, and he came over, came down the road, and stubby case turned to me. Said, "Oh look, uh, that's my torso. I lent it to him," which is very funny. I thought at the time, um, I still use it myself. <laughs> but no one believes me. Um, so you you mentioned Andrew Cartmel quite a few times. He started to drive the scripts or the kind of stories that you were getting into a, a new direction. There was some really good stuff happening in the episodes, and it was starting to become relevant again. It was you know things like the Happiness Patrol, Remembrance of the Daleks, really great stories. Did you, when when that started happening, did you have a feeling of optimism that oh this is a job for a while this? Or? Well yes no I mean well, uh, not only optimism the thing is that they offered me they, they actually forced me in a sense twisted my arm to do a fourth season I'd only decided to do three because Patrick Troughton I told Peter Davison, who told me, only do three. And I thought, that's what I'll do, because Patrick Trout is my doctor. Even though he didn't tell me directly, but I thought, I'll do that. And then 
on the second season, they came to me and said, listen, we like the way things are going. We want you to do a fourth season. And, I went, mm. and they said, well, if you don't do a fourth season, you won't do a third season. And then, so I got my head around it and thought, okay, I will. And then, uh, when I was doing the first three seasons, they were only doing 15 episodes or 15 weeks. I can't remember. 50, uh, no, it was 15 weeks. And for an actor, that was great because, I mean, I had a TV job half of the year and then for the other half, I could go off and do theatre work. And I got a good, you know, a guaranteed wage and all that kind of stuff. So I was happy with that. But then when they said we want to do a whole year, that's 26 episodes, 26 um, weeks, I think, that was an episode. Um, then I thought, hmm. And then I got my head around it. So I was happy. So yeah, no, we thought it was going well. The, the feedback was going well. The magazine was selling more. And, you know, all that kind of thing coming back. But BBC politics was such that the thing about the BBC is that you, you, the only way you can make your name as a producer is to produce something new. Benita Lambert had made her name with Doctor Who 20 or 30, 25 years before. So for 25 years, no one could make their name in that slot, as it were. So they were trying to get rid of it for that reason. And that's what they, they did for a while. They came back. It did. And here we are now. Are we? And we are. And... Are you sure? I, I've been told quite recently, in the last 30 minutes, uh, that you're now a, a movie star. You were in The Hobbits. Oh, was I? Apparently so. How, how, would, how would you know? I mean, I look like you in The Hobbit. <laughs> well, I've got cleaner hair. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no bird poo. Yeah. How pathetic. No, that's one of the things. Imagine not having bird poo in your hair. What was that? Bird poo, was it? Porridge. <laughs> My name is makeup with a bit of porridge in it. No, no, we used to get a seagull in every morning. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, sometimes it would have well. I've heard rumours and stories about Peter Jackson and him liking the Seventh Doctor. You're going to tell us now, is all this true? How did you end up in The Hobbit? Well, The Hobbit, well, actually, it was a long, long journey, really, because years before there was another series called. Lord of the Rings, you might have heard of it. Vaguely. Yeah, and uh, I, I was asked to go up and be seen for Bilbo Baggins. So that those, well, with films, what they do is they get kind of a half a dozen actors they think might be right, the casting directors, and they send them along, and then they film them, and they screen test them, and then they whittle them down, you know, they kind of they work out, maybe he'll be good with him or she, I don't know. The, you know, it's, it's not always to do with how good you are in a sense, it's how balanced you are with others. And so um, they decided, they whittled down to two over six months, and I was I was one of the two. And um, what's his name? Got it. Uh, yeah. Ian Holm yeah. got it. Ian Holm got it. And I was a bit obviously disappointed because it was rather exciting to get near that near. But then I was also quite flattered to be in his company. So um, that was nice. And then, savvy, I mean, if Ian Holm hadn't, had, couldn't do it, or asked for too much money, I would have got the part. But they remembered me. Mm. Then, a couple of years later, I was in King Lear with uh, a big tall fellow called Ian McKellen. You know, Gandalf, he used to be called sometimes. <laughs> anyway, I, he was King Lear, and I played the full King Lear, and it's kind of like a double act. Mm. And we did it for the Shakespeare Company, and we toured the world for a year and a half, and then filmed, filmed it, so there's some of film. And we went to New Zealand. So it's that second step towards getting a Radagast because we went to New Zealand and 
Peter and his family came to see King Lear, and then they invited us to their house. When we were there, I heard that the children's, his children said that he had my costume, and that they hoped he might turn up in it. But he didn't, to their disappointment. And then, that was, uh, uh, that was one step, and then uh, a year or so later, I was asked to screen test for Guillermo del Toro, who was directing it. And I, I did the screen test as Radagast, and he said, "C," si, when he looked at it, because that means yes in Spanish. See, si. you see what I mean? Uh, you see what I mean, Tommy? Anyway, he so he 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 liked what I did, so I got the part. Then that all fell apart because he had to go; he couldn't make it in time. Blah blah. And then he Peter took over. So we worked for three years. Doctor was never mentioned. On the last day, my last day. Peter made a lovely speech, as he did with the others. Uh, gave me a present, gave me the staff that I had, and the seat with my name on it, and you know some wine from Bilbo Baggins' cellar, and all that kind of stuff. And said nice things, and we're working together. And then he said, he was kind of said, and then he said, it was really great working with Sylvester. And he said, and he said, I got to work with Doctor Who! <laughs> you waited three years for that. <laughs> right. And it's a wise man, you see. If he'd have done that at the beginning, then the you know the the stats the state the status would have been quite different. Because if he'd have said, "Oh, Sylvester, you move over," they said, "Listen, I'm the doctor. You're the fan. I'll move over here." And he'd have to go, "Okay, can I have your autograph?" And then, <laughs> but now this way, uh, he, he he could tell me what to do, and I would do it. And um, in a moment, I am going to open the floor to fandom. Well, of course, they all disappeared down the hall. <laughs> so that's them going to school. I'm going to ask something because I asked this of them. Um, I interviewed a bloke called Colin Baker once and I asked him this. Oh, Colin. I once played Colin Baker. Did you? <laughs> well, I, I, he, I played Doctor Who number six. Yes. Because he didn't turn up because that was part of the, you know, something terrible had happened. I don't know where it was, but um, Colin, I think rightly so, didn't turn up for the regeneration. So they stuck me in his costume. They lost me for three days. <laughs> Anyways, I played him. Um, well, I've, I've been to see him in a, in a play, a musical, because um, because he was Doctor Who, and he encouraged me to go see a musical. And when I was 16, I went to see you in a play, and because you were Doctor Who and you were in a play, and I, I, I came to meet you afterwards and got your autograph. And it, I was, it was called Having a Ball, it was about the sex in Italy. Yeah, that was by... Um, <laughs> that was by... Uh, Plato, uh, no, not Alan Plato, no, one of the great Liverpool playwrights. Uh, he wrote GBH. Anyway, yeah. Alan, who was GBH? Alan Bleasdale. Alan Bleasdale. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the great Alan Bleasdale. That's right. Um, well, my, what, the reason I asked that is because, well, I, I was Doctor Who so I came to see it. Yeah. Um, do you think you have uh, influenced fandom to a wider cultural spectrum because, because <laughs> of Doctor Who, because they'll come and see other things? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great things about fandom is that they do go and see things. I mean... Some of them don't. I mean, you can go on tour and you, you know you can have a long queue after the show, and you know two thirds of it are fans, but they haven't been to see the show. They're just queuing up to get your autographs. But out of that, there's third of it are people who do go and see stuff. And hopefully that does. I mean, you know, influence people. They go, "Oh, I've never been to a live theatre. Wow, that's what it's like. I like that. I'll go and see some more." And not just with Doctor Who fans, but yeah, I hope so. Cool. Well, that is the moment, so I, I need to get my, I've got up around there and get my uh, other microphone so I can jump around in the audience, so. No, give it to me. 
Sylvester is asked, what future projects do you have coming up? Well, uh, yes, uh, Monday, Tuesday I'm doing the big finish, that's what it is. Uh, Wednesday I'm flying to Berlin to do Sense8, which I, I did a couple of episodes in the second series of Sense8, which is on Netflix. Um, I'm going to do some there, and then I'm going to, so that's Berlin, and then I'm going to Paris, and then Brussels to film. And then, uh, uh, where am I going? Then I'm going to America to so do convention in Long Island, and then Chicago, and then Seattle, and then I come back, and then I go to Thailand to spend Christmas with my family, and then on New Year we're going to Hong Kong to see how New Year in, and then in January, um, no idea. I would. Yes, no, I, no, I, I think I, all the 20th century doctors have said that every time we've been asked that question. Because a lot of people are asking, yes, we'd all be very pleased to do some proper Doctor Who. Because we still are in a way. Because we do a big finish, I don't know if you know about that, but it's audio, like, or radio drama of Doctor Who. So we've carried on doing Doctor Who ever since we finished doing it properly, because it called myself. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be still Doctor Who. Although I'm a bit worried about wearing a dress for the next Sylvester is asked, who is his favourite Doctor from the rebooted series? Who would, who would I boot as my favourite Doctor? A rebooted Doctor. Anyway, my favourite Doctor of the rebooted one. Well, that's a very dangerous question a very dangerous one to answer, you see, because all, well, every doctor, every doctor's taller than me. I mean, if I don't say that one, the other one will go, you didn't mention me, both, and then give it away. I mean, I, I, I like them all in their own different way. And Christopher Eccleston, I think, is the one that I do like, because I love the idea he was, you know, more of a, you know, original, more working class doctor, you know, to be like, you know, and I, I thought that was really good. I mean, I know I was kind of vaguely Scottish, but it wasn't that Scottish. No, not me. Peter Capaldi, Scottish, you know, he's not like that. No, he's not like that. I can understand everything he says, but I don't understand. So, um, uh, I, yeah, I think so. Christopher Eccleston, for that one, that reason, that they take it away from, you know, middle class uh, Oxford, Cambridge type doctor who's doing it. So that, and then they went back to it. But, um, Yes, hello. Instead of playing several doctor, if you went and did it now, would you cancel the same or would it be any different? I don't know. Yes, it'd be older. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I mean, it would be quite the same, but maybe not as running around all over the place, falling down, getting blown up. At this point, uh, Sylvester gets asked, what is the weirdest thing anyone has ever asked him? When I first got up here, I went to Minneapolis, the United States of America, and then I was on the stage, and I was just leaving in a white suit and a hat. I was about a thousand people in the surrounding room, 
had questions, and someone got up and said to me, um, excuse me, Mr. Mackay, and now you become so universally famous, are you worried about being shot? <laughs> <laughs> so, luckily there was, a, there was a couch there, so I hid, I hid behind the couch, and he yeah, wouldn't come out until then, you know. I put my hat Someone didn't shoot that in there. Sylvester is now asked what other part he would like to have played in The Hobbit. Oh my gracious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do that one. Yeah. So, would you set Scarborough at the beginning of the year? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you can't get your money back. Where would you go? Um, where would I go? Yes. Where would I go? Well, I'm, I quite like to go. I, I like to go back in time. Um, I'd like to go back maybe to, you know, the, the time of the Roman Empire. You know, hang out there and see what's happening. Maybe go back to the Greeks. That'd be even better, really. Because um, they were more civilized. And, um, yeah, I might do that. Well, I, 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 used to, I did Greek at school. I had Scottish education and they give you Latin and Greek, you know, as well as boxing. And, um, <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I used to call, uh, my Latin teacher did tell me once, he said, uh, he said to me, he said, you know, the Greeks were so civilized, they invented television, realized how appalling it was, and then got rid of it. So um, I would be quite nice to go back there. In fact, they did actually invent television. The <laughs> <laughs> question, which is basically this: um, Which do you find more congenial, Big Finish or BBC? Big, big Finish, more congenial because the food is great, and because the guy Tony who runs the place is the most amazing chef, and he he does. I mean, he's miraculous. He does everything. You know, he records it, he edits it, he does all the kind of things, he records all the stuff, he runs the studio, and he gives lunch. And they are the best lunches. And everyone who's worked for Big Finish at his studio, that's what all we talk about. The money's crap, but the food is great. <laughs> but is it a matter of scale? Because with BBC, everything's sort of complex and large, and with, with, with Big Finish, it's tiny, almost like this. Yeah, it's kind of, that's true. But it's, it's much more... Yes, it's more friendly, you know, it's one to one, you know everybody is running it. Whereas the BBC, you know, there was a very general, I mean, I, I mean, uh, it was, um, what's his name, who was running it when I was there? Um, Gray, Michael Gray, he, he was running it. I, I did meet him one or two times, but just to say hello. I mean, Michael Gray claims, he, now, he's rather proud to claim that he killed off Doctor Who. He didn't, he's lying. Because what happened was that he was advised, yes, to kill it off, which he did, and they got rid of Colin. And then the producer, Rodney Fontana, took him to America to see the fan base in America, because it was so strong then. Not as strong as it's become, but it was pretty strong. And so he went there and changed his mind, so he came back, and Michael Gray is, I, I, I got employed because of Michael Gray changing his mind. And then Michael Gray left the BBC to go and run Channel 4. I was still got to who. And then the guy took over from him, who most likely advised him in the first place to get rid of it before I came back. He got rid of it. So that's, um, yeah, but that's, I mean, the BBC is great. I mean, uh, when we were doing Doctor Who, 
everybody was so involved in it. All the, the props men we, we heard of some guy who had been at Oxford and given up his degree in order to get a job moving furniture around at the BBC so he could be near Doctor Who. I mean, honestly, it was like, and it was, it was the passion that they, uh, everyone had for it because it allowed their imagination free reign. The art department loved it. The writers, you know, even the, you know the prop men and all that kind of stuff, they loved. You know, they loved it. And so it was always loved. You were surrounded by all that love while you were making it. So it wasn't in any way kind of... It was only outside the studio, outside the rehearsal room, up there in the, the offices, there were kind of things... The young boy now asks the inevitable question, what does Sylvester think of the new female doctor? To which Sylvester asks him, what does he think? The young boy says he thinks it'll ruin it. There's what Sylvester said. think it ruined it. Why should we be in time travel with time? Isn't it? Wow, it might ruin it. Who knows? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a very interesting thing. I'm trying to be very diplomatic about this and saying that I'm going to wait to see what it's like and then judge it. You know, it's a bit odd though, because I am Doctor Who still, because I'm doing Big Finish and I'm still doing Doctor Who. But suddenly I've become a woman. I'm not sure. Sylvester is now asking how he first got into acting and what advice would he give to people wanting to go into acting? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going into acting. Oh, God, I think I, I, I fell out of the womb, I think. Um, I don't know really how much. I mean, I. I said, yeah, I never went to grammar school, but I was always showing off. Being an orphan, I tell you, if you want to be an actor, be an orphan. <laughs> because what happens is, if you're an orphan, you're, you, uh, you, your mum and dad, you don't have them. So then, as a child, you, you are due, it's your love and care uh, from your parents. The majority of the world do that. You know, I know that some don't, but you are, it's your right. You don't have to demand it. It's there. You know, you don't have to say, please, it's there. You're my mum and dad. Love me. You know, look after me. Whereas if you're an orphan, you've got to go, ah, who's going to look after me? Oh, hello. Hello, hello. So you've got to charm them. You know, hey, try to make them laugh, make them smile, make them fall in love with you, all that kind of stuff. That's anarchy. So I think I said, don't go to drama school, become an orphan. <laughs> oh, who's my favourite character? Doctor Who, apart from me, apart from Sophie, Bonnie, and my favourite character. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I favourite character was Doctor Numbers Two, I suppose. Paddy Trouton. He was. I, he, I saw him. I fell in love with Doctor Who through him, really. Um, <coughs> the Weeping Angels. They're kind of a bit scary. I found them really scary. But funny, funny enough, I was in uh, Norway. No, Sweden. I was in Sweden. It was kind of dark night, and I, I came out of this bookshop, and there was a church just opposite, with the light shining on it, and on top of the, the steeple was a weeping angel. I mean, honestly, it looked like a weeping angel. And I went, oh my God! And it started, and I was walking the laces, and I thought, we're not going to blink, we're just not going to blink. And I went out to the middle of the road, and then he got run over. I should have blinked. Who's my favourite superhero? Um, Super, I'll pick Clark Kent. I'll tell you why. 
Um, my name is not <coughs> Sylvester McCoy. I'm not the real McCoy. It's a stage name. <laughs> my real name is Percy James Patrick Kent Smith. So as a child, though, until the age of 11, I thought my name was Kent Smith. They didn't tell me about the other bit. I just thought, after the age of 11, I was Kent Smith. And I was, so I, I was Kent. So Clark Kent, the Superman. So I, you know, I used to, I used to get, I had a, a red um, dressing gown. I used to run around in it. The you know, Superman, Clark Kent. And uh, I got arrested three times for going into a telephone box to take my clothes off. Clark <laughs> <laughs> was, he was my favourite one. I like the one in the film, actually. I like the Stephen Cock one. And always, when I remember thinking, that's what, what I got off the loo, they gave me the one I got then. I remember thinking, I don't mind to be, you know. And when, when I came to do the film, I couldn't believe it. This is the one I want. And it's mine, you see, because I had it first before Paul McGann. It's not his, it's mine. But that's the one I like, and I, that's the one I, you know, carry on with the fact. If he asked me to come back, I'd do it. Doctor Who's really about hope, isn't it? I hope so. It's as though what you're showing is courage and hope at the same time. Yes. And vulnerability. Yes. And that's what makes me fall in love with it. Okay, yes. Yeah. No, I'd say it's about, it's about optimism and it's about... I mean, in a way, what, you know they say there's about five stories under the sun, and the man kinds. Uh, womankind's genius is to take these five stories and retell them different ways to entertain and surprise us again and again and again. That's our genius. There's only five of them. And one of them is that story about someone coming from outside the world. Yeah, and you're taking on the form of a human being and, you know, kind of trying to save the world, trying to help the world as in, you know, and uh, fight against evil. Religions started with that. So, you know, Doctor Who is the same story, and people ask, right, that's what his longevity, I believe, is that for that fact. It's one of those stories we love to hear again and again and again and again. I'm going to say that until I get here. A little dearer, not many again. <coughs> Who's my favourite sonic screwdriver? I know nothing about sonic screwdrivers. My doctor did not have a sonic screwdriver. My producer decided, rather, I think, rightly so, in many ways, it was making it far too easy for the writers to get the doctor out of trouble by saying, like, he just whipped out his sonic screwdriver. So I never could whip out my sonic screwdriver, I didn't have one. Except when I did the film, when I handed over to Paul McGann. Now, they gave me a sonic screwdriver, and of course I've never seen one, I never used one. And so I pointed the sonic screwdriver at this box where the master was in it to do something around. And the thing is that, in fact, Put it backwards. I actually did it backwards. <laughs> and if you look at the, the, the TV thing, they pixelated it a bit so you can't see that. In fact, I'm zapping you. Any of the sides do that, do Ooh, I've got to come around. Hold this way. Coming around. Coming around. This is how I get my exercise. <laughs> Where are you? Oh, there you are. Why do you not know where people sort of bullets or pops from your time on the show? Yes. Well, what happened was it because it's finished that unusual way. Because when we, I mean, they vaguely knew when we filmed the last survival. <coughs> they knew we didn't that we were coming back next year. Um, <coughs> although I didn't know until the middle of August. And Johnny had to phone me up and said, "Listen, I've just phoned you up to tell you I've sent you a letter." I said, "Oh, that's that's weird. Okay." And then he said, "I'm going to tell you what's in it." I said, "That's really weird." Well, I said the letter. But anyway, he told me that the TV was going, the story was going to 
into hiatus, and because someone wanted to make a film, and then it would come back later, and then they forgot to bring it back until nine years. So anyway, that was that story. But I had the costume and the umbrellas at home because I was given those to PAs, personal appearances. So I had all of those. And I, they forgot to ask for the back, and I forgot to tell them I have it. I've also got the spoons that I play all over, uh, you know, in the very first story. John Nathan Turner loved having a party, and when we were on location, he'd have a party. And the people would do the party piece. Bonnie Langford, who was an amazing singer and dancer, is an amazing singer and dancer. She did her party piece, and I pathetically played the spoons. And John Nathan Turner said to me, Oh, we're going to have that in Doctor Who. I thought he was joking. And then I got the script, and then in the first scene, I played the spoons. And so I got those spoons, <coughs> the two funny little things that I took out of it, about the engine that makes the spaceship run. And I played the spoons all over Kate and I's front. <coughs> My goodness, they did that. Don't you have some spoons now, <laughs> Sylvester? I beg your pardon? Don't you have some spoons now, Sylvester? Oh, yes, I know. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, so uh, Sylvester anyway, we'll is now asked if he was given any advice from previous doctors before taking on the role. Well, John Pertley, I got on really well with the veterans, but he used to say, um, um, "Don't go, um, um, uh, don't go, um, um." So that's it. I didn't ask him to stop going um, um, questions. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, um, not really. No, I think Tom Baker. He, the, I think his advice would be get out of my way, little man. I don't know. Blah blah blah. All that kind of stuff. What role did you prefer playing, uh, Gas or the Seventh Doctor? Both. You see, I did the Seventh Doctor thirty odd years ago, right? Well, I mean, I, when I did it, it was great. It was very adventure too. I, I mean, it was a very adventurous part. It's one of the best TV roles there are. I didn't know that when I got it, but realised it halfway through. It was an astonishing role. You could go, or you could do all sorts of things with it. Dark, funny, blah, blah. But very adventurous. Lots of physical adventure. So that was great. Like riding motorbikes and doing things. Um, so uh, I loved it. But then an actor falls in love with the part he's playing, necessarily. And so when that finished, I went for another part and played that. So, you know, and so when I got eventually to Radigast the Brown, I loved him as well. And, you know, I loved playing him. And that was another adventure too. A lot of sledges and stuff like that. But anyway, um, so uh, we are we are at Sylvester at that point in town where someone else is trying to get in the room. And oh, sorry. Someone's possession of it. Um, yeah. I really don't want to stop you, but... <laughs> is, there, is there anything you can end on? Oh, yes. Um, Do you have a song? <laughs> so the problem is that the spoons. I need someone to hold it near the spoon. I can do that. And uh, so, I mean, uh, it's a. Uh, so um, I don't quite know how to play really. Because the thing about spoons is a timpani. You need music. You need. So if you all go da 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 okay one two three da oh, come on
ladies and gentlemen, a very huge thank you to our special guest, Sylvester McCoy. Right, thank you everyone. What, a rude moment? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, I've got to leave again now. Ladies and gentlemen. No, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> Who am I signing this to? Andy. Andy. How, how handy to sign up for Andy. Right, now, right, okay. okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Back in time. Thank you. Thank our very special guest, Sylvester McCoy. Thank you.